Turn with me to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16, and uh, last uh, time we focused on the Hebrews' mutiny against divine destiny. Uh, for those of you that are visiting, uh, we are in the book of Numbers, have been there for a number of months now, and we're up to chapter 16 and even into 17 today. Uh, but uh, the, the uh, children of Israel uh, were unwilling to accept God's blueprint and will for their lives and his chain of command. Uh, they were dissatisfied with God's uh, path and their own path. You could say they were miserable. Uh, their mutinous attitude was spawned by a declaration of independence from the Lord. Now, when a person goes through life thinking, I don't need God, uh, they're going to find uh, that they are about to get themselves into a situation that they're going to need him very, very soon and, and very much. Uh, the Lord allows predicaments, he allows trials because God is a jealous God there are to be no other gods in our lives. When a person declares independence from God, uh, in essence saying, I am my own God, I'm calling my own shots, I'm going to do my will, that attitude leads to trouble and desperation of independence from God. You need the Lord, whether you like it or not. Uh, John chapter 15 and verse 5 says, I am the vine, ye are the branches, he that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 5, it says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Now here in Numbers chapter 16 and 17, we find two challenges to the leadership of Moses and Aaron, uh, one from a group of Levites and one from the people as a whole. And out of each of these confrontations come some visible reminders to the Jews of their rebe rebellion. Uh, the brass covering on the altar and then Aaron's rod that budded. Now notice with me, first of all, the first confrontation. <coughs> Uh, some of this we covered in last week's message, but I want to remind us of that. Remember, uh, some of you uh, know what I said in uh, Sunday school, where uh, an acquaintance of mine, a preacher who's now with the Lord, said, the fear of repetition is the curse of the ministry. And so if you say, well, we've heard this before, well, we're going to hear it again. And uh, uh, because God repeats himself many, many times, and we see that throughout the scriptures. And so we covered some of this, but I want to remind us again of what uh, we saw last week. Uh, we said that no matter how much God did for them or taught them, Israel was not a spiritually minded people. Uh, they still had Egypt in their hearts and they had lust for idols uh, that stayed with them even while they marched through the wilderness. And uh, there are other commentaries concerning this throughout the scriptures. And you know the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so in Amos chapter 5, verse 25 and 26, it says, Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Ch uh, Chion, your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. They were worshiping idols. 
And in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, uh, we read about this as well. It says, uh, then God turned and gave up them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Repham, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Moses was a godly leader. Israel could have been a godly people if they had obeyed what Moses taught them. Now notice, again, we uh, spoke of Korah last week. Korah is a notable leader. We find here in chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, and again, we're uh, reviewing here a little bit, but repetition is good, right? And uh, we noted that Korah was a person of importance. Uh, we see it in his ability to gather 250 men of renown. And we see it because we're given his genealogy. In Numbers chapter 27 and verse 3, it suggests that the men from other tribes uh, were involved in the rebellion. So it was a nationwide conspiracy. Uh, the Kohathites carried the tabernacle furniture when Israel marched to a new location and they camped on the south side of the tabernacle, across from Gad, Simeon, and Reuben. And perhaps this explains how Korah was able to get Dathan, Abiram, and on uh, three Reubenites to join him in his crusade. Now, whenever you find complaining and rebelling of God's people, there's usually a stated reason and a hidden reason. And so we find here uh, Korah's public complaint was that Moses and Aaron were running things and they were not giving the people opportunity for input. Uh, they wanted more democracy in the camp. After all, the Lord dwelt in the entire camp and all the people were the kingdom of priests. So uh, were Moses and Aaron to elevate themselves above everybody else? Well, that was the public complaint. But the hidden reason was that Korah wanted the Levites to have the same privileges as Aaron and his sons. And Korah wasn't satisfied to be an assistant uh, priest. He wanted to be a priest, the head priest. Now, whether it's the ancient camp of Israel or a modern city today, no society can fu function without subordination. And please note that I say subordination and subordination does not mean inferiority. A private in the army might have more character and wisdom than a general. But the fact that remains, he's still a private and he's got to obey orders. Somebody has to be in charge. Parents have to have authority in their homes. Teachers have to have authority in their classrooms. Managers in the factory or the office. Civil servants in the city or the nation. When this kind of order breaks down, then society is in serious trouble. God had chosen Moses to be the leader of this nation and Aaron to be the high priest. And to resist this arrangement that God had made was to rebel against the will of God and to bring serious division in the camp. Now, the selfish desire of greatness and authority is a common theme we find throughout Scripture. Whether it's Korah opposing Moses and Aaron or one of the examples we mentioned 
uh, last week. Remember, there was Absalom. He tried to overthrow David. There was Adonijah, who claimed the crown in 1 Kings. Uh, there was Diotrephes, who loved the preeminence uh, in the church in 2 John. Uh, there's disciples who bickered among themselves who would be the number one disciple. And the most important place in a Christian life is the place of God's choice, the place he's prepared for us and prepared for us to fill. Now, the important thing isn't status, but faithfulness. Doing the work God wants us to do. Every member of this local church has a spiritual gift that is to be used, and it's to be used in serving others. Therefore, every member is important to God and to this church. For some, it's leadership. For some, it's teaching. For others, it's important work behind the scenes. There's prayer and care of the facilities and just being an encouragement to those who are in need. But everyone is important. Now, while Korah was a notable leader, we see Moses was a humble leader. We saw that in verses 4 through 11 of chapter 16. And as he had done before, Moses fell on his face before the Lord. He didn't debate with Korah. Uh, He didn't uh, try to debate with his crowd and try to change their minds, but because he knew their aim was to seize the priesthood, something the Lord would never permit. And so the Lord would show Korah and his followers how wrong they were, and their pride would ultimately lead to their destruction. The test Moses proposed was a very simple one. If Korah and his men were indeed priests and acceptable to God, then let them bring their censers to the tabernacle and see if God would accept them. Surely the rebels remembered what, Mo, uh, what happened to Nadab and Abihu when they rashly brought strange fire before the Lord, and even this warning did not detour them. So Moses fell on his face before the Lord. He was a humble leader, and he gave a simple test to those who were rebelling. And so then we find in verses 12 through 17, Moses was an angry leader. Moses called Dathan and Abiram to come to a meeting. Uh, They refused. It's interesting that nothing is said about on. uh, So perhaps he wisely dropped out of this rebellion at this point. We don't know that for sure. Nothing's mentioned of him here. But the arrogance of these two men is painful to see, for they not only refused to obey Moses, but they blamed him for Israel's sin at Kadesh Barnea. Even more, they called Egypt a land of milk and honey. And they accused Moses of bringing himself a prince and lording over the people. Undoubtedly, these spiritual ignorant men had envy in their hearts, and they wanted to take over the leadership themselves. Again, Moses didn't argue with the rebels. He prayed to the Lord. He asked them to vindicate his servant. And so we find here, Moses' anger is not an anger of sin. It's not a selfish irritation. It was a righteous indignation of a man of integrity who sought only the glory of the Lord. There's a righteous anger that God's people ought to feel when sinners defy the will of God and tempt others to sin. You remember Moses' anger at the worship of the golden calf. When when he came down from Mount Sinai with the the commandments and he found uh, the people worshiping a golden calf and dancing in Exodus chapter 32. You remember the anger of Jesus when people criticized him for healing on the Sabbath in Mark chapter 3. 
And you remember Paul's exhortation in Ephesians chapter 4. It says, be ye angry and sin not. There is a righteous anger, and I believe Moses had this righteous anger. He was upset at the rebellion, and rightly so. But then we come to Jehovah, the righteous judge. We find this in verses 18 of chapter 16, 18 through 35. The next morning, uh, Korah and his followers showed up with their censers. Uh, They stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance of the tabernacle, while Dathan and Abiram stood with their families at the doors of their tents on the south side of the tabernacle. And we can imagine, maybe there was an awesome silence that prevailed. And then the glory of the Lord appeared, and the voice of the Lord spoke, and the hour of God's judgment had arrived. Moses and Aaron, being true leaders, immediately fell on their faces before the Lord and interceded for the nation. Why should all the people die because of the sin of these men? Moses frequently had to intercede for the people, and they probably didn't appreciate what he did. Uh, they didn't appreciate what he did for them. On two occasions, God was ready to destroy the entire nation. But you remember, Moses interceded for the people. And then God warned the Jews to move away from the tents of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And the earth opened up and swallowed up these evil men and their households. And the fire from God destroyed the 250 would-be priests. God made it very clear that the Jews were to accept their appointed leaders and respect their authority. It's a dangerous thing for people to challenge God's order, promote themselves to become leaders. And they not only rebel against the Lord, but were reminded in verse 11... Uh, As we're reminded here in verse 11, it says uh, in chapter 16, verse 11, For which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord, and what is Aaron that ye murmur against him? And then against their own lives, that it tells us in verse 38. It says, The censors of those sinners against their own souls, let them make bread a broad plates for a covering of the altar, for they offered them before the Lord. Therefore they were hallowed, and they should be a sign unto the children of Israel. So we've seen Korah, a very notable leader. We see Moses, a humble leader. We see Moses, an angry leader. But we see Jehovah God, the righteous judge. That brings us to verse 36 through 40, and we find Eliezer, the faithful priest. Now, since the 250 censers had been offered to the Lord, they were sanctified, even though the men who held them were wicked. So the censers couldn't be treated like a common metal. Uh, God ordered Aaron's son, Eliezer, to gather them up and have them beaten into plates to be put on the altar uh, of burnt offering. These plates would be a lasting reminder to the people it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of a living God, as it tells us in Hebrews 10.31. Now whether these plates replaced the original bronze network on the uh, sacrifices were burned or added to it, we're not told. But what, why is this important? Well, I'm reminded uh, of uh, in the book of Jude, how uh, Jude wrote to warn the early church about false teachers. Uh, and he used Korah as an example. And he associated Korah with Cain and Balaam. Now that's not a very good group to be associated with. 
He refers to them as gainsaying, which means to say against or to oppose in word and deed to rebel. And so in his farewell message to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, Paul warned about proud people who would seek to seize authority in a local church and promote themselves. It's like, uh, likely that more churches have been divided because of arrogant leadership than because of false doctrine. So that's the first confrontation we find here. And we want to move on uh, to the second confrontation. Now the deaths of 250 people should have uh, kind of uh, brought uh, people to their, uh, to their senses at this point. Uh, it should have brought a reverent awe into the hearts of the Israelites. But we find there was no fear of God before their eyes. What began with several hundred rebels had now become a national uprising. Instead of falling to their knees and crying to God for the forgiveness and mercy that they needed, the Jews were rebelling against Moses and Aaron just as Korah had done. Carnally minded people can perceive the spiritual meaning of what God does because, uh, or they cannot perceive the spiritual meaning of what God does because they lack spiritual discernment. The nation uh, beheld God's acts, but Moses understood God's ways. We're told in Psalm 103 in verse 7, He made known His ways unto Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel. Again, the glory of the Lord appeared, and the judgment of the Lord began to consume the Israelites. For the second time in two days, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces and interceded for the people. Aaron took a censer and ran into the ranks of people who were already smitten. And there in chapter 16 and verse 48, it says, He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. When they counted the corpses, they found that there were 14,700 people who had died because of their foolish rebellion against the Lord. The New Testament reminds us the wages of sin is death. Now what is there about the human heart that makes it so easy to follow a crowd and disobey the Lord? I remember when I was teaching at Maranatha Baptist Bible College, now Maranatha Baptist University, Dr. B. Myron Cedarholm uh, used to remind us uh, that one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. He, he might have, talk about repetition, he, he, he would emphasize that over and over. And that includes church history as well. And I remind you that we need to learn from our past. Uh, we need to allow our past to be a blessing instead of living in the past and letting the past be a curse. You say, you don't understand, Pastor. My past is pretty ugly. I kind of wonder about that kind of uh, thinking. Does that make sense? Pretty and ugly? <laughs> uh, it can't be pretty and ugly at the same time, can it? Well, learn not to repeat our mistakes of the past. I think we have all know we've made mistakes in the past. And determine, we need to determine in our, in our, to live our life to the glory of God. Now, if you're unsaved, then you need to get saved. You need new life in Christ. You need to start over again. If you're saved... And there's sin in your heart, you need to confess that sin and read God's word and you need to pray and you need to start over again. Now here in, the, in chapter 17, 
we have a reminder. Look at chapter 17. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 here. And I want you to see this morning that the rod of Aaron is in this story. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and take of every one of them a rod, according to the house of their fathers, and of all their princes, according to the house of their fathers, twelve rods. Write thou every man's name upon his rod. And thou shalt write Aaron's name upon the rod of Levi, for one rod shall be for the head of the house of their fathers. And thou shalt lay them up in the tabernacle of the congregation before the testimony where I will meet with you. And it shall come to pass that the man's rod whom I shall choose shall blossom. And I will make, uh, make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, whereby they murmured against you. And Moses spake unto the children of Israel, and every one of their princes gave him a rod apiece for each prince one, according to their father's houses, even twelve rods, and the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses laid up the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. And it came to pass that on the morrow Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. And Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord unto the children of Israel, and they looked, and they took every man his rod. And the Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels, and that thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me, that they die not. And Moses did so as the Lord commanded him, so did he. So we noticed here this morning, As we look at the budding of Aaron's rod, first of all, it was alive. Uh, We read in this account that the rod or the staff representing the tribe of Levi uh, that buds. You know it's interesting that God even chose the uh, tribe of Levi to provide spiritual leadership for the nation of Israel. In the book of Genesis, we see that Levi was one of Jacob's worst sons. If you think about what Jacob said to Levi, some of his last words in Genesis chapter 49, he says, Simeon and Levi are brethren, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not from, uh, not thou into their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a well, a wall. Uh, cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And so from reading that passage, it would seem that Levi would be on the bottom of the list to be chosen to lead spiritual life in Israel. But that's not the case. So why did God choose Levi? Why not choose Judah or one of the other tribes? Well, I believe the answer to this question is in the meaning of the name Levi. The name Levi means attached. Uh, I believe that's significant in its meaning. The Old Testament names all have great meaning. I believe that God in choosing Levi is saying that he is seeking a people who would be attached to him. Why did the twelve rods or staffs have, what did they have in common before uh, they were brought before the testimony? Well, they were all dead pieces of wood. 
They'd been broken off from their life source. But in this story, we see the staff of Aaron begins to bud. It's a normal staff, cannot bud because it's been severed from its life source. And then the staff of Aaron buds because it is attached to the life source of God himself. And I believe God chose the tribe of Levi to be a spiritual leader of Israel to show that such a position is not based on personal ability or merit, but rather one's attachment to him. You know, if we, have a li- if we have life at all in our lives, it's only because we're attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. John 15, verse 5, Jesus speaks of branches there. He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth fruit, uh, much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. You see, God did not intend for his children to be dead branches. He wants us to be alive. When people saw Aaron's branch, they took notice of it because it was different from the other branches. Uh, They they were just dead sticks. And these rods were dead and barren, but Aaron's rod was full of life. Just as the rod resurrected with life confirmed Aaron's position over the other tribal leaders, so the resurrection of Christ confirms Aaron. Him to be the true Messiah over false religious leaders such as Joseph Smith or Buddha or Muhammad. I believe that, uh, that the reason why many churches are in decline today is because they're full of dead sticks. They once may have been alive, but somewhere in their history they became broken from their life source Many churches and denominations start out with, as great movements of God and then become monuments to those movements. And then after a while, these monuments become mausoleums. And such is also true of individual believers who have fallen away from the Lord. They have allowed themselves to be broken from the life source and thus have an appearance of every other dead stick in the world. And we need to ask ourselves, when people see us, what do they see? Do they see us just like all the other dead sticks in the world? Or do we manifest the life of Jesus Christ? Aaron's rod was alive. Notice, secondly, it was fruitful. You know, the great thing about the rod of Aaron was that it wasn't just alive, but it was fruitful. It, was, it had almonds growing on it. Now, something about a fruitful plant is that it has something to give away. I can imagine that when Aaron was walking about the Israelite camp with his rod, maybe the children ran up and asked him for some almonds. Or maybe he was on a diet, like my one doctor told me. He said, if you're going to snack, you can have seven almonds. That's it. So uh, I eat my seven almonds, of course, Maybe fudge a little bit here and there. But they were, it was a rod that was productive. 
I don't know if Aaron actually gave away those almonds on his staff, but thinking about this made me think of our own spiritual lives. When I consider our position as believers, God certainly desires that we have fruit to give away. God does not desire that we be believers who just keep life of God for ourselves. I'm a Christian, I'm just going to keep it to myself. No, he wants us to be able to share his presence with other people. What is the fruit of the Christian life? Well, Galatians chapter 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. I wonder, have you ever seen ripe apples on um, a neighbor's tree? I don't know if you have a neighbor that has apple trees or not. But sometimes if you see a, 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 an apple tree that's got some ripe apples and you wanted to partake of them. Uh, when we were down in Florida earlier this year, we went past acres and acres and acres and acres and acres of orange groves. Oh, they looked good. And I think someone said, well, you know, why couldn't you just stop along the road and go pick yourself an orange? Oh, you better not do that. They'll, uh, you'll get in trouble, big trouble if you do that. But if you see an apple or an orange on a tree, uh, you, you want to partake of it. It looks good. It looks delicious. You know, that's the kind of way people ought to look at our spiritual fruit. It ought to be tantalizing to those in the world that they want to partake of it. They want what we have. May the peace and love in our lives be so real that people want to uh, have the fruit of our lives as well in their lives. As I close this morning, I want you to think it's interesting to consider some different purposes that rods or staffs had in the time of Aaron. The first one is identity. In number 17, we see Aaron's staff was a source of identity for him. It was certainly the most famous staff mentioned in the Bible. It was a staff of Aaron that was cast down before Pharaoh and it was transformed into a serpent. It was the raised staff of Aaron that the waters of the Nile were turned red and other miracles that were brought. But in here in Numbers 17, we see it as a budding staff that would confirm his position as a spiritual leader. And when Aaron walked about the camp of Israel, he carried with him life and spiritual authority. And I, I thought about this, reflected about this, I felt challenged in my own life. We as believers need to, be, uh, to recognize spiritual authority wherever we go. This isn't something just for the Old Testament priests or modern day pastors, but it's for all believers. Those of you that have a job in the secular world, you come in contact with people that are lost every day. Well, in what ways do you represent Christ to the people you work with? Do they sense a real spiritual authority governing your life? Now, I'm not saying you're going to rule over them with a fist and say, you got to do this, you got to do like I do. But they ought to see the authority of God is upon your life. Many people in the world are seeking genuine spiritual authority. Matthew 7, 28 and 29 says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And we, 
as believers, are called to be like Jesus in a lost and dying world. And for those of us who are genuinely saved, we are to be the authority on spiritual matters when relating to lost people. And God would desire that we carry that authority as confidently as Aaron carried his rod. The second thing I notice here about the purpose of rods and staffs in the time of Aaron was that they were security. It seemed that the staffs during the time of Aaron were often used as weapons or a stave uh, uh, to to, uh, fight off wild animals. It was like a staff that uh, Moses drove off the shepherds that were challenging the daughters of the priests of Midian in Exodus chapter 2. And when people looked upon the rod of Aaron, perhaps they were reminded how they were trusting in their own rods for security. They saw something different about Aaron's rod. His rod was alive. It had the presence of God. Aaron, in carrying the living staff, reminded the Israelites that they were to put their trust in the living God. Not in the dead wood and the metal of idols. And God repeatedly, repeatedly, over and over, reminded the Israelites that their military successes were not due to their own uh, success, their own wisdom, but His power. A power He often manifested through Moses and Aaron. David, in writing the 23rd Psalm, found comfort in the strength of God. It was symbolized by a staff. He said in Verse 4 of Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You know, these are days in which people are looking for security. Uh, They look to big bank accounts, but they don't offer security. They look to a savings or an investment plan. Or insurance, and on and on we could go, that people are looking for some kind of security in life. Nothing wrong with those things. They have their place, but they're really not what makes us secure, are they? You see, people are looking to the things of this world, and they look to, uh, to the dead stick instead of the living vine. So where do we put our security in the times of difficulty? Is it dead wood of this world? Or is it the living and loving God? I was reading a a note from one of our missionaries. Marnie Krauss is very close to uh, being fully supported. And she's made plans to go to language school. And she's waiting on God to provide everything. And she was mentioning how that sometimes she kind of seems to worry about those things. But she said... I trust God for my salvation. Why can't I trust God for my visa to go to the the foreign field? Why can't I trust God for the support I need? I trust God for my salvation. That's ultimately way more important. Can't I trust God for these things here on earth as well? Is it the dead wood of this world that we're looking to? Or the living and loving God. And then thirdly, there's support. A rod, a staff, offered support. As Aaron was getting along in years, no doubt, I'm sure he leaned on his rod for support. 
One of the places we see the staff mentioned in scriptures in Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 16. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, behold, I will break the staff of bread in, in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight and with care, and they shall drink water by measure and with astonishment. Staffs indeed seem to hold a great significance for the ancient Hebrews. Here, uh, uh, The staff is used figuratively to speak of the support of life. As I reflect on the staff being something one leans on for support, I have to ask, what is it we often lean on? Do we lean on that which is living or that which is dead? Are we leaning on dead sticks? The Apostle Paul faced many difficult circumstances in life, situations that would have shattered him if he had relied on his own strength. We read in 2 Corinthians 12 of a time in his life when he has especially to lean on the presence of God. He said this, I, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that were given to me, a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities with the power of Christ, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in the infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul, in one of his most difficult hours, was leaning upon the living vine, Jesus Christ. What is it we lean on in the most difficult circumstances of life? Are we leaning on the world? Are we looking to the world for the answers? Are we looking to our own resources? All of that is just dead sticks compared to Jesus Christ. A dead stick will break under certain pressure. But the living vine will support us no matter what. What is it we carry in the world we live in? Is it a barren, ordinary, uh, dead stick just like other people? Or is it living? Is it fruitful? Do people see us carrying that which is alive or that which is dead? You say, what? What can I take away from this message this morning? I think we need to ask ourselves, does my life bear fruit that others can partake of? Am I bearing fruit that others can partake of? What do you identify yourself with? That which is worldly and dead or that which is living and eternal? What do you look for for your security? What do you look for Or look to for your support. You know this morning there may be some of you here that have never made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. I want to tell you that you can experience a love and a transformation by God that you've never experienced before. You may feel like a dead stick. But I want to tell you this morning there is hope. I want to tell you that by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, the the Spirit of God can transform you to become all that He has intended for you to be. I believe that God is interceding for you now. And you need only to respond to what He's telling you 
to do this morning. And there are some of you here this morning, Christians, maybe saved for many years, but you've rebelled against the Lord as well. You've said, I can live the Christian life my way. Perhaps you've allowed sin to creep into your lives and you haven't dealt with that sin. Remember the four things I encourage you to do last week, and I hope you'll do them every day. That is, confess all known sin, get rid of all that is doubtful, obey the Holy Spirit instantly. Don't say, Well, I'll go home and think about that. And then confess Christ openly. And be a living, fruitful rod, staff, a branch, whatever we want to call it. And don't be a dead stick. There's enough dead sticks in the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven.